0: If your Bibles turned into Luke chapter nine, please pick up where we left off last week. Luke nine, starting at verse seven. Father, we ask for your blessing this morning. We look to you and to you alone to open our ears and our hearts and our minds. You, O oh Lord, you are the one who can graciously give. You are gracious. You do give. You give to us in abundance. And we're very thankful to you for being merciful, for being kind, gracious. So this morning we ask that you would help us in every way to receive your word, and that you would, by the Spirit, work in our hearts and minds. For we ask it in Christ. Amen. You know, one thing we're probably, I would guess, I would perhaps even hope, experiencing right now during this election year is heartburn. Because no matter how you slice it, way too much power is going to be given to an individual that I wouldn't even trust with a knife. But hopefully, hopefully, what happens as we see God's judgment increase is that we begin, especially as his people, to be led in repentance and prayer. And we begin to seek the Lord. Because in Jesus' day, do you realize if we just, get some context for a second, we have a hard time relating often because, it, you know, when you read the scriptures, and sometimes we read things in the scriptures, often you'll find a mass discrepancy between their times and ours, between what they're going through and what we're going through. But as time progresses, I think more and more, there's some things we can begin to relate to. There's some connections that I want us to see here. In the text before us in Luke chapter 9, we're introduced to a character whose name is Herod the Tetrarch. And he's mentioned as being curious about Jesus. He was the ruler of Galilee and Perea. And he bore the title Tetrarch. And you know what this, why this word Tetrarch actually means, ruler of a quarter. So Augustus, put in in 4 BC after his father's death and his father was Herod the Great. So Herod the Tetrarch who's the ruler of this quarter was put in power in 4 BC by Augustus Caesar Augustus after his father had died and so he's basically a ruler and they call him kings because they governed and ruled regions and areas or in this case a tetrarch because he was over a quarter of the empire. And it was his father who's referred to in Matthew 2. The reason I had Matthew 2 read for us this morning is because there we're introduced to Herod the Great, supposedly. And Herod the Great there is different than Herod the Tetrarch we're seeing here. It's important that we see the difference, however they're related. Herod the Tetrarch we're seeing here, and Herod we heard of in Matthew 2, That Herod in Matthew 2, is the Tetrarch, Herod the Tetrarch's dad. He's also better known as, Herod the Tetrarch was actually commonly referred to as Antipas. So when you hear the word Antipas, and sometimes they'll do that, you'll hear stories and they'll use different names and you're confused. Because he's referred to one way and yet he has another name, he can be referred to another way. The Bible calls him Herod the Tetrarch, but he wasn't commonly referred to as that. He was more commonly referred to as Antipas. And so he also has a brother, and his brother is Herod as well, Herod Philip. So Herod Antipas and Herod Philip are sons of Herod. Great. Got it all, right? Herod the Tetrarch, the one we're going to be introduced to here, he was basically most well-known for building big building projects, but most especially the construction of his capital, Tiberias, on the western sh- shore of the S- uh, Sea of Galilee. In this particular Herod, Herod Antipas, he ends up marrying his brother, Herod Philip, his wife. So he visited his brother, Herod Philip. He checks out his wife. Her name's Herodias. And apparently Herodias catches his eye. And he really likes Herodias, and he wants to marry her. So what he does is he divorces his wife. Apparently he lets Herodias know that his interest in her, and she ends up divorcing Herod Philip. And then Herodias and this Herod, that we're seeing in our passage, end up married. Well, uh, this is actually in the scriptures where you find John the Baptist got himself in trouble because now he said Herod the Tetrarch that we see in the passage. What you're doing is sin. That is sin. And he called it straight out sin. Well, Herodias and Herod did not like this very much. And they don't like to be confronted with their sin, obviously. And so this Herod had John the Baptist put in prison. Now, as the course of events go along, they end up having a party. And at this party, Herodias' daughter dances for Herod and his guests. And man, this pleased. Herod. He's like, wow, this is great. And so as he's so pleased with her dancing. I don't know what kind of dancing it was, but he's pleased with it. Very pleased with it. He, he, he offers her anything she wants. And so she doesn't know what to ask for. She asks her, Mother Herodias, what, would, what should I ask for? She says, ask for John the Baptist's head. Okay. So she tells Herod this. Herod goes, gulp. Um, It says in the text of scripture that he regrets even making the foul, the promise. Because he actually had a a fair amount of respect for John the Baptist. And he did not want to do this, but he wants to save face in front of his guests and his party. And so what does he do? He says he orders John the Baptist's head to be decapitated. They cut off his head, they put it on a platter, and they bring it out in the middle of the party. Now that's one way to ruin a party. And I, <laughs> who asked for a head in the middle of a party? It's just, it's actually quite astounding. And it's quite amazing that you could actually have people think this way. But it shows the kind of wickedness in power in the times of Jesus. So if you get really concerned about what's happening in this country as you see wickedness, exalted to power, realize that we're getting to the place where we can kind of more and more relate to some evil times and what it's like to have wickedness and power. Jesus comes in the midst of this kind of scenario. Wickedness is in power. Yet, let's not get too quickly uh, self-righteous and think, oh, I'm so glad we're not like that, because we're a lot like it, just a little different. Because we have the same kind of actual wickedness happening today. It's just cloaked differently. Because the only difference you'll find, really, is that if you are like John the Baptist, you get in trouble. You'll probably be taken at night, uh, killed in a dark alley, thrown in a dumpster, and never be heard of again. The only difference is you're not going to show up at a, at a party with your head on a platter. You'll just sh- show up in a dumpster uh, in a bag somewhere. So we function a little differently. And both in both cases, people in power gave the call. In both cases, people in power ask for this to happen, and it indeed happened. So we're living in a culture that's much more clinical, much more backdoor, much more on the surface presents itself all smiley and nice. And and, and here's the here's the thing. We're in a situation right now. You look what's happening with this, and I want to draw this comparison in the political race and what's happening in Jesus' time. What's happening right now? is you have people who joyfully are going to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman and because she presents herself so well. She smiles. She seems happy. She always seems composed. And everything on the outside is what? It's whitewashed. It looks good. And, And you have people who think, oh, at least she's not like that bombastic fool there who opens his mouth, and on the outside he makes a fool of himself. It's true. You know, you've got the clown on one side Who's making a fool of himself. And you got Hillary on the other side who's all trying to present herself as all together and, and nice and clean and, and pure and everything's good. But now, behind the scenes, we have, we have a Hillary Clinton who is wicked. Wicked on many levels. So, we don't, we don't, but, but I'm noticing nobody seems to care. Nobody cares that uh, the that the inside is rotten as long as the outside looks good and I just fear I fear for the judgment of God actually because I would not if you're in that courtroom at the end of days when all things will be made right we're going to see that you know sure you might have covered it up sure you've tried to to make yourself look white on the outside, but everybody's going to see the darkness on the inside. And this is a reflection, actually. So the, kid, the the leaders that we end up having is a reflection of the people. This is what we're like as a people. We're nice and clean on the outside, and we're dirty and wicked on the inside. And it's a, it is a reflection. And so what we're seeing here in our days, where more and more as judgments increase, we see wickedness rise to power. And wickedness is in power just like in the day of Jesus. And when power, when you have wickedness and power, you have one particular power, whatever the power is, they begin to take notice of anybody else who might have power. Power takes notice of power. If you look at chapter chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, this is what it says. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening through him, through Jesus. All that was happening because what Jesus was doing. And he was perplexed. Because, this is why he's perplexed, it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So there's rumors going about. He's hearing about this Jesus. He's wondering who this Jesus is, and he's perplexed. And why? Well, as he says in verse 9, Herod said, John, I have beheaded. So. According to my categories, I don't think that's possible. But who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. He's very interested. He wants to find out who this Jesus is. Because of why? Why does he want to? He's hearing reports. Reports of what? Reports of this Jesus doing unbelievable things. These miracles and such. He's healing people. He's probably heard reports he's walking on water. He's raised people from the dead calm storms and you can understand why he's quote-unquote perplexed because he's not getting a straight report as to who is this guy and clearly he's probably more than perplexed he's probably concerned he's probably troubled and he's probably really getting curious and wanting to find out because whatever he's thinking whatever's happening here the power that is is beginning to take notice of a particular power that's rising And it doesn't matter what the situation is. You know, those at the top, if they see an upper up-and-comer begin to rise, they take notice, and they start to take an interest in it. Power always takes notice of power. They're on the lookout. They, they are very aware. This was also the case with the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the religious leaders of the day. They had tremendous power and influence. And guess what? They take notice of Jesus. And in this case, it's actually quite a bit different because they're taking notice of Jesus because he was rising in popularity amongst their constituency. Now, this all, now this isn't is, just power rising and power being interested. This was power rising against the powerful, and the powerful now were actually feeling a little bit slighted. These are our people, and they seem to be following after him. So they take great notice in Jesus. And you know, just think of it this way. In our day, we continually do this. Power always takes notice of power. Not necessarily all of a sudden that power isn't someone who's a threatening power. They're just almost become a world power. Look what happens even in the sports world today. Michael Phelps wins all the gold medals. He comes this national hero. And right away, Obama's on the phone and calls him into his office and wants him to be, have a picture with him and shake his hand and give him an award and say, here, is this national man who's risen to high, high levels, and I want to get next to him. Now, he doesn't want to get next to anybody, but Michael Phelps has risen, in a sense, in esteem, in glory, and in power. There's a power that comes with that. There's an influence of that, and everybody takes notice, and especially the powerful, and then they want to get beside them. They quickly take notice. In the case of powerful Herod, he wasn't threatened by Jesus, because he didn't see Jesus as taking anything from him at this point. He doesn't know Jesus' agenda. He doesn't know his mission. He doesn't see anything being lost by him. So all of, in a lot of ways, Jesus is probably like a circus show to him. Probably a, this would be, he's hearing what he's doing and think, man, that would be something else to see that. I really would like to, I'm drawn to this guy. To say, he wanted, I probably just wanted to see what he could do. But in the case of the scribes and the Pharisees, they were taking notice for different reasons. They had more at stake, so it seemed to them. You know, in America today, followers of Jesus are becoming more and more noticed because they stand for things that are challenging those who are rising in power. And you realize that a person now who refuses to serve somebody in a business now makes a national stage. We're in a politically correct environment, and if any, Jesus is anything, he's not politically correct. And so what happens when power, when power, and depending on that power rises, and then there's a contrary power, someone seems to be rising up, they, first of all, you'll know, they will take great notice. That's the first thing that's gonna happen. They will take, and they are taking notice. And so what's happening, even in, as we live in our times, the world, my friends, are taking notice. And after they take notice, they begin to pursue. And this is the second step. So the power takes notice of power, and then power will pursue that particular power. As we had read for us this morning in Matthew chapter 2, Herod's father, Herod the Great, or not so great, probably be more accurate, heard that Jesus was born, and he became incredibly troubled, the text says. And why do you think that is? So the power at the time, Herod, he was the king of Judea. He hears this news, but what news did he hear? That the king of the Jews was born. Wait wait a second. Who's the king of the Jews? Herod is. Herod, he's king of Judea, that region. He is king of the Jews, and he hears that this Jesus is born, and he's being referred to as the king of the Jews. Boom! Power takes notice of power, and now power pursues. And this is what he took notice, he hears this, and now in his case, he was incredibly threatened by this. And here's also why. Herod the Great was an, was an Edomite who became a Jew. So now he's, he's at least ceremonially, physically, and culturally identifying himself with the Jewish people. Not only that, he, because of this, he's probably attending synagogue, and he clearly knows about what's going on. He knows, when he's a king of the Jew, he knows, okay, this is Messiah. Notice the question he asks the, the Magi. So where is the, the Messiah to be born? He doesn't know those details, but he does know Messiah is to be born. So where is he to be born? Finds out it's in Bethlehem. Okay, he says, yeah, well, bring him here. I'd like to, I want to worship him. Well, he's just a schemer. He's pursuing him. He's going after him. And so he gets kind of schemed himself. He finds out that, you know, obviously God's in this and the Magi go a different direction. And then they're, they're warned in a dream. And so is Joseph warned in a dream. And they head off to Egypt with Jesus. So now Herod the Great kills all the children in Bethlehem and that surrounding region who are two years old and under. And he thinks, I'm sure of it. I'm sure he thinks that he's wiped him out. And why do I say that? Because if he didn't think he wiped him out and he was still concerned about his threat, he would have told his sons even. And he would have told his sons about the threat. But he doesn't. Clearly, now we have Herod the Tetrarch, Antipas, who now all he is is he's just curious about Jesus because he's this rising superstar, but not because he feels threatened for his position. He's in a he he actually approaches it completely different than his dad did. His dad was nervous and threatened for his position of power. This Herod Tetrarch in chapter, chapter 9 of Luke is actually just more curious. Because I'm sure in his mind his dad told him about this Jesus was he's done away with. If you think he doesn't know that Jesus escaped, he just thinks he got rid of him because he got rid of every kid 2 years and under. He says, "Yeah, there's there's a way of getting rid of him. I know I got him." How do you miss? He doesn't know that Joseph was warned in a dream. And that he headed off to Egypt. And so here we have this power pursuing power, and and what's interesting about this is this is what we have always when power becomes concerned about the rising power. It doesn't matter what it is, they they start they they start with interest and then they actually start pursuing and going after the scribes and the Pharisees. They, do you realize the scribes and the Pharisees did not start off angry. And hateful the scribes and the Pharisees went from curious interest to actually pursuing Jesus, not in a negative way at first in a very positive way. in Luke seven, Jesus is invited to the Pharisee's house, a Pharisee he didn't say the name a Pharisee's house to eat, and while he's there eating and dining, this woman comes in behind him, and she's known for somehow she's known. To be a sinner. Now, obviously, by the way she dressed, by the way she acted, everything about her communicates na, 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 na. sinner, big time. Because he he says, yeah, and then she starts weeping over Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair. <laughs> it's it's the ultimate awkward moment. And this Pharisee's like, do you do you know who's uh, doing that? Guess what? In, in our culture, she's as unclean as unclean gets. And now she's touching you, and now you're unclean. Uh, do you know how that works? Uh, this is really, really bizarre, awkward. So Jesus was, he's drawn in, he's pursued, and he go, people go after him, and they pull him in. And, and then all of a sudden, they're starting to be confronted with him. And as they're confronted with him, and he's messing with them, and they, they're like, whoa, 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 what's this? this guy is off the charts. I don't know how to deal with him. But they also know he has power and they pursue his power in another way. Jason, it says, who was a Pharisee, he was actually the, um, he was the ruler of the synagogue. He comes to Jesus because his daughter is very sick and about to die. And he begs Jesus to come and heal her. So he sees his power, he knows his power, and he's drawn to it, and he goes after him. They don't, Jesus at this point was actually being pursued in actually a kind of positive way. They're starting to hang out. They're taking notice. They're, they're pursuing. They're going after him. They're listening to him. What do you, what does he have to say? What's he all about? They're checking him out because how do you not check this guy out who's just got such a massive following and is doing the things that he's doing? And you know what? This is why even in our lives, if people see the power of God in our lives, they will often pursue us and ask us further questions. Especially if they're intrigued by what they see. Because people, if they see something that's not normal, it's not following the norms, and they see something, if they especially, they see a power. And that's why even Paul talks so much about trials in, in our lives and how we go through them and how it speaks of God's grace and power in, in our lives. Because you're handling it, you're dealing with it in a way that caused them to scratch their heads. And they see power. They see it's not, this isn't normal, and so they pursue it, and they go after it. Not all the time are they, it's not like, hey, could I have some? Or, you know, I really want, I want to serve the God that you serve. But they're still curious, and they still come after it often. You know, a good example of how this works is in Acts 18, where Simon the sorcerer, he sees the power the apostles have and what they're able to do, and he starts to covet their power. He was very, you got to understand, Simon the Sorcerer was very powerful, very respected. This guy was a sorcerer, and they thought he had real skills. And now he watched the apostles, and he said, i got nothing to compare those guys. So he's really attracted to this, what's going on. But at the same time, he actually hears, it says he heard about Jesus, and he believes, he's baptized, and he's brought into the church. And then he sees the apostles lay hands on some of the disciples, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And he's like, whoa. I want some of that. Here's how it unfolds in Acts 18, 18 through 22. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. that's for more power. Simon was very drawn by the power. But Simon was not drawn with a pure heart. He was drawn with an impure heart because he loved the power and wanted it coveted it and he thought that the gift of God could be purchased and as as Peter responds to his heart was weak and so he was exposed but nevertheless, you will see this time and time again power will always take notice of power and then often with sometimes total impure motives will pursue that power sometimes it looks for good and sometimes for ill, but they will go after it and they want to get close to it because power pursues power, it loves it, it's very attracted to it. And there's so this could be illustrated on so many levels. But you know what eventually happens? Power doesn't just pursue power, but once it understands the power, depending on what that power is, will often persecute. You know, in the passage before us, we don't see Herod persecuting Jesus. But when Herod actually does get in contact with Jesus, it doesn't happen until Luke chapter 23. If you're to flip over and look at Luke 23, things change. Because when he encounters is a Jesus who won't even talk to him. He won't even converse with him. He won't answer any of his questions. He just remains completely silent. And Herod is probably expecting at least a little bit of a circus or a magic show or something along those lines. He wants a little entertainment for him and his comrades. He would probably like to see, hey, Jesus, why don't you, you know, do some miracle here? This would be great. And he's asking him questions, trying to figure He just kind of wants to put this all together, and he really he wants to figure this Jesus out. And then all of a sudden, Jesus isn't giving him what he wants. He doesn't get anything from Jesus. And so what does he and his men do? They encounter this Jesus. This Jesus they encounter they don't particularly care for or like. And he's supposed to be all powerful. And they turn on him. Bam! Just like that. And the text reveals that they begin to mock him. And, And with contempt, it says. Mock him with contempt. Like, totally. Like, you're a fool. You're a buffoon. And they're joking, throwing jokes at him probably. Probably him and his comrades start like just, Back and forth, all kinds of things to say against them. And then they won't get a robe and they put a robe on him as a hilarious gesture because I'm sure that they find out that the rumor is, oh yeah, this guy's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And not only that, in this text in Luke 23, you also find, hey, there's someone else who's showing up here. The chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes show up, and they're not they're not just. They're not mocking or ridiculing; they're vehement. The text says that they were actually stood by vehemently, accusing Jesus. They were wanting nothing less than Jesus' blood. They wanted it at this point. Now we've moved quite a ways. You know, they—they they showed it. They took interest. They pursued him. They found out what he's all about, and now it's turned to massive persecution. Because at this point, Jesus is completely contrary to their agenda. He's a rising power who seems to have its almost uncontrollable power, and it seems to be contrary to them. And, and Jesus now at this point, he's speaking against the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, and they are, are getting completely undone by Jesus. They're being, now at this point, starting to be humiliated before Jesus and everybody else, and they hate him. They want nothing more than to destroy him. They turned to so massive persecution, and it won't be long, and they'll actually have a mailed on the cross. You know, recently I read about this Christian family that was beaten and crucified in Syria. They were Muslims who turned to Jesus, were baptized and following him. But because this was seen as a major threat to the Muslim religion and could mean others turning, it always to them means that. And eventually. You know their control crumbling, and now all of a sudden you have people who are in you, and according to that religion, they're now apostates and apostates and infidels. They need to be put to death, and so they beat them severely. And there's even this is a man and his young boy, and they they did things that are like hard to even read, and it's it's not easy to stomach. And they would not deny Jesus, and so power. This is powerful, and over in in Syria, the Muslim religion is a powerful, a powerful force. And they encounter now, they're encountering a, a power that's transformative. And what would that be like? To see people who would not, who would rather embrace death than deny Jesus. Yet they don't rebel with any kind of force. They just receive from the hands of these wicked men their cruelty, this persecution. But what's amazing is that Jesus will use this, and typically hear stories, if you hear the repercussions of this, more turn to Jesus, because when they look and they see, they see that, they're like, there's no power on earth like that. And just to give a, another example, that that's indeed how this works, that Jesus, even as, as you try to crush him and crush his people and destroy them and and do everything that you can using every tool you can every powerful means to try to to try to get his people to turn away from him you just cause more people to turn towards him so this power begins to persecute this power and it does nothing but spread it you know There's another story that I heard in preparing for this, that I read in preparing for this sermon. And it's about a Muslim husband who beat his his wife to death because she turned to Jesus. And he did this while his two sons were watching. His two sons, or probably young sons, watched this and he beat her to death. So, what happens as a result? His two sons turned to Jesus because they saw their mom's faith and love. They couldn't believe it. So who yielded the greater power? Power rises up and persecutes that power. Who has greater power, his husband or Jesus? It's Jesus. The husband lost his sons, and Jesus gained them. The husband used death to try to create fear. Jesus used his death to destroy fear. This is why the sons chose Jesus. Because even though they knew what happened to their mom could happen to them, they also knew that Jesus conquered death. You know, the world thinks that by threatening people with death, it holds ultimate power. It always has. Death has always held ultimate power. Just think of that. Any people here really want to die? Like, you know, no. And if you do, probably something's wrong. However, for the longest time, death held man in complete control because if I could threaten you with death, I held ultimate power. I had power over you the moment if I can put a gun to your head and know that I control your destiny at that moment, I have power over you. And that's the powerful, and people, the wicked, people who hold power often think that the greatest weapon they have is death. That's how they think. The wicked think that death is their tool. It's the very thing that they will use to destroy. And so they think that threatening people with it holds ultimate power. And it used to. But Jesus has overcome death. So death no longer holds his power. Therefore, we don't serve those who threaten to destroy our bodies. We serve him who destroys death in his own body. How? By overcoming death and rising from the dead. But perhaps we struggle with Jesus, and we struggle, uh, you know, as we struggle even against the powers that be. Or we struggle against these wicked people in power because it doesn't, you know, why does Jesus, if Jesus is so powerful, why does he allow his people to suffer? Why does he allow his people to be tortured? Why does he allow his people to be beheaded? Why does he allow his people to be persecuted like this? And why does he allow Him to be crucified? You ever think of that? If Jesus is this ultimate power, why Jesus? Is he, why doesn't he do anything? Stop. He's already done it. He's already taken on death. And death now has no victory. But now what this serves is, is a powerful testimony, a powerful tool. Precious in his sight are the death of the righteous, his children. Death no longer has the sting. Oh, sting or death, where is your sting? Death has been overcome. Death has been conquered. And so even though death is still scary, and even though you, you know, you're probably sweating bricks, and even though you need an abundant amount of grace to go, go through something like that, one thing it also does is it purifies, it divides. You can confess all day long the resurrection of Jesus. But the other thing that what happens in persecution when it comes, it proves whether you believe it or not. It's a wonderful testing room. It almost by itself separates the wheat from the tares. When the heat comes and the persecution comes, Jesus is not afraid of it, and he's not afraid for his people to go through it because he knows that they have life and life eternal. And, and you know what he does? He turns the whole thing on its head because it, he says, blessed are you when they persecute you and say all kinds of vile things against you, and do evil towards you. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. So he he gives abundant blessing in it. Not only that, you don't have to be afraid of their sword. You don't have to be afraid of the chopping block. You don't have to be afraid. One, I'm with you. Two, you will enter into life eternal. And great will be your reward. Here's the thing, you have to believe it. And the thing is, this is why Jesus is okay with allowing his people to go through it. Because it accomplishes so much. We will only understand at the end when our eyes are fully open and we see the final judgment, all that the glorious things accomplished through it. Because it and, and, and it's, it's just this unbelievable dynamic going on where blessing and goodness and reward comes to those who go through it but yet what do we see with our eyes the worst possible imaginable thing is happening so the worst thing is happening but jesus says "Uh uh-uh the best thing is happening but yet lord i see with my eyes the worst i know you do but if you have any doubts what do you look to? Look to the resurrection. He says, people, I've conquered death. Really and truly, Do you doubt, go looking for me. Go search these things out. There's witnesses. It's true. He's conquered and overcome death. And he gives his promise to his people. So will all who trust in me. And so we, by faith, we move forward, into, even into the face of death, because we say, oh, death, where is your sting? the powers that be, even though they be wicked and rise up and they come after us and condemn us and seek to kill us and destroy us because power, once it sees a threatening power, will also always persecute that power. But we will stand and we will win. And it will spread and it will grow because that's the way Jesus does things. But we don't have to fear it. Some people say, all you have to fear is, is you know, death, the greatest fear for many people. Well, this is why this resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith. No, we don't have to fear death. Why? Our Lord Jesus overcame overcome death, defeated it. He's going to raise everybody from the dead who trusts in him. And that's my sure stay. And I'm telling you what, folks, this is becoming more and more important. This isn't just theory. This isn't just, oh, another resurrection thing. This isn't just, you know, a statement about power over uh, persecuting power. This is reality, and I guarantee you in our lifetimes, I don't know if you're seeing the speed at which wickedness is rising to power, the speed at which this culture is crumbling. I'm telling you, in time, more and more persecution is going to take place. Judgment is coming. And you need to be confident in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's got to be your life. When you're comfortable, when you're happy, when you're entertained, you know, chips are falling down your chin and you got a couple beers and you're watching the football game and all of life seems great, know that it's coming to an end. And in this particular age, it's not going to be too long by the looks of things before you're going to find power persecuting the power of Jesus. And that's going to include you. And so you need more than ever, my friends, to believe and hope in and cling to the resurrection of Jesus because that is your hope. Don't cling and hope in and, and, and put your trust in somebody to get in power who will overthrow them. That's not where your hope lies. And more and more, this kind of judgment is coming. So more and more, you need to be ready. Be watchful. Be ready and and let the power of the resurrection sink down into your bones. Ask the tough questions. Do you doubt it? Then you need to investigate it. You need to read about it and know it and understand it and it needs to be the thing that drives you. And you say, yes, I believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and all those who are in him will rise too. And it needs to be your confidence. Because then you'll stand. But if it's not, you'll fall. So God may grant us all grace to stand in these wicked times. Father, we come to you as those who are desperately needy. We are weak. We are frail. We are so without strength. But you, Lord, you are the one. We don't look to ourselves. We don't look to our own strength. We don't look to our own righteousness. We look to you To you, O God, you, to you belongs the power and the glory. To you belongs our salvation. To you belongs our strength. O Lord, I pray, I pray for these people that we would all become grounded and confident in in the power of the resurrection. That it would be our confidence. It would be our stake that we plant in the ground so that we too might face death boldly as all your saints have. Pray, oh God, if there be anybody here unbelieving, doubting, or questioning the power of your resurrection, that you would, by grace, by your Spirit, draw them, open their eyes, and grant them faith, believe. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.